got to think, there's 42 gallons of oil per barrel. So that's roughly 206 million gallons of oil that were dumped into a small body of water between Mexico and Florida. Okay? And that was just two years ago. Um, and maybe a, a helpful image will say 206 million milk cartons full of oil were dumped into that body of water. Okay? That's maybe a little helpful. It's hard to grasp 206 million, but we're going to try. Scientists estimate that over the three months it took to stop the oil spill, that the Deepwater Horizon oil rig spilled an average of 53,000 barrels of oil a day. Okay? That is 2,226,000 gallons, milk jugs worth full of oil a day into an ocean. That's a lot of oil for three months that spilled. And obviously there are environmental and tourist problems and business problems that I could go into, but I'm going to borrow a page from a pastor named Richie Sessions who makes two helpful comments about how the Deepwater Horizon oil spill relates to us. Okay. First, this oil spill is a vivid visual picture of our hearts. We are spewing 2,226,000 gallons of self-centered thoughts, of self-centered actions, of self-centered feelings every single day. This is a hard and alarming truth that some of you are really frustrated with already. Um, and it requires a radical honesty with ourselves. And I'm going to go there. We're gonna, I'm going to convince you of this case for just a few seconds, if you're in doubt. Um, just think about Facebook for a second. When you go to a group photo, who do you look for first? Yourself. Okay? <laughs> Who do you worry about? Whose hair, whose smile, whose wardrobe choices do you worry about? Yourself. I do that. I'm guessing you do that too. Okay? Let's just think about our everyday life. How many texts and emails do we send a day? And how often do we love or hate to reread our texts and reread our email messages? We love to hate or hate to love making sure that we sound fun enough. Making sure that we sound at least, at the very least, not boring lane. But let me just give you a very real personal example that happened to me just last week. So I was walking into Corbett, and there were two people with clipboards, which I was like, oh no, a survey. <laughs> okay, and so I used my get out of jail free card, which was, I'm not a student, therefore you can't use my data. And they said, actually, this is for the whole general public. And so I found myself shamed into taking this survey. And the survey was on type 2 diabetes, okay? <laughs> which I knew nothing about, by the way. Um, and the first page was just me guessing at random, trivial facts about type 2 diabetes. But then the back page asked about lifestyle choices I was making. Okay? Um, it asked about how often I dieted, how often, what, what my diet was, how like, many servings of food, like fruits, vegetables, that sort of thing. Um, and then also about how often I exercise per week, per day, that sort of thing. Okay? Um, and you know what? I fudged the truth. <laughs> I lied. Let's just be honest. I lied on an anonymous survey. <laughs> okay? It's anonymous. No one, no, my name's not on there. <laughs> on a nutrition general ed class that no one will see. I lied about how many servings of vegetables I eat per day. <laughs> I circled the wrong answer on purpose. That's messed up. That is so messed up. 
That is, what, what's my problem? What's my deal? You know, the, the Bible has a word for it. Sin. Sin. And you might think, well, okay, sin, that is self-centeredness. What's the big deal about that? Okay? You, maybe you're normalizing it in your head, and you're saying, okay, like, I'm a, I do think a lot about myself, but everyone does, so it's okay. I, I guess the idea of why sin is such a big deal, why self-centeredness is such a big deal, is the, the more time and energy we spend focusing on ourselves, the less time and energy we spend focusing on other people and on God. Do you see that direct proportion? We're limited human beings. And that energy and time that we spend focusing on other people and on God is what the Bible calls love. Okay? So, um, you can choose to ignore this sin problem, this lack of love problem, uh, but let's face it, we're covered in oil. And we're spewing oil all over everyone around us. And you can pretend like it's no big deal, but that's basically like going to the Gulf Coast circa May 2010 and ordering seafood and shrimp in particular, and eating smothered and covered shrimp and seafood, covered and smothered with oil. That's what it's like to ignore this problem in spiritual dimension. And so I think we have to do something about this. All this sin, all this oil that's around us, inside of us, uh, all over us, okay? It's filthy oil. And I think the deep water horizon gives us an understanding of how people cope with this, okay? That whole event and the aftermath of it. How was that handled? There were two basic strategies, which correspond to our passage, by the way, if you're wondering where the heck we are. Okay? Metaphorically speaking, they correspond to the passage. One set of people went to work trying to clean up the seashore. Okay? They measured their success by how many pelicans they cleaned oil off of. Their attempt to deal with the problem of the oil spill looks like setting up measurable systematic progress, measurable systematic goals of wiping pelican beaks off of oil. Okay? That's what it looks like. But what's the problem with this well-meaning attempt? The oil was still flowing into the ocean. It was still flowing onto the seashore at a rate of 2,226,000 gallons a day. Just because, I mean, how it's a lot of pelicans. A lot of things of pelican beaks. A second set of folks, most engineers, Okay, we've got some of those in this room. Went to work trying to fix the wellhead, okay, that was broken, that was gushing oil. And their first attempts all failed for three months, okay? Whether it was in the drawing room or on the seafloor, they had these elaborate, captivating, dare I say, mystical solutions to this problem, okay? And some of you heard about some of these. There was like, there's even talk of like shipping a hydrogen bomb down to the bottom of the, of the ocean and blowing it up to stop it, Okay? There was temp there was micro like there was oil eating microbacteria, there's underwater robotic vehicles, there was a containment dome that looked something like the dice bubble in the, in the board game Trouble. Okay? <laughs> and a fluids-based method, and this is my favorite name ever, Top Kill. That's what a cool engineering name, okay? Top Kill? Are you kidding me? That's awesome. Okay. Anyway, all these cool quick fix methods failed for three months. And really, the, it was the least sexy, the simplest method that succeeded. A new external cap was put on the wellhead. If you understand the spiritual significance of this metaphor, you understand what Paul's point is in this passage. Okay? All of us have this problem, whether we call ourselves Christian or not. All of us have a problem. We're gushing gallons upon gallons of self-centered thoughts and actions. 
but the solution to the problem is not an easy-to-follow program that treats the symptoms of sin in our behaviors, okay? rather than looking to sin's source in our hearts. Okay? Here's the analogy. That's just cleaning off oil from pelican beaks and not going to the wellhead. And the solution is not to this problem that we all have, some mystical, quick-fix experience to hit the heart through a visionary experience. That looks like just another failed top kill, or trouble bubble, though. Okay? Paul and our pastor tonight is advocating an external and very simple solution, a real relationship with a real person, Jesus of Nazareth, the spiritual cap the spiritual head. Jesus is God become man. So he knows our problem intimately because he's fully man. And he's fully God. So he can, he's able to solve our problem, to fix it once and for all. So simply put, the point of Colossians chapter 2, verses 18 through 23 is this. Hold fast. Hold fast to a real relationship with a real Jesus who really rescues. And accept no formulaic programs or mystical vision experiences as poor substitutes. I'll say it again. Hold fast to a real relationship with a real Jesus who really rescues. And accept no substitutes, no formulaic <coughs> programs or mystical vision experiences. Okay. Let me break this down in the passage for you. Okay. Again, I told you this is like the third part of a three-part look at Colossians chapter 2. But you don't need to have been here to understand what's going on. Paul's just explaining what the good life looks like. What does it mean to live spiritually well? That's what this whole chapter is about. And he started all the way back in chapter 2, verse 6. And we can divide this conclusion into two parts by Paul's, by Paul's basic, um, by his basic argument. Okay. And I'm going to put it really simply, in fact. I have this really like, complicated like, athletic analogy with Paul as a coach. I'm just really going to scrap it. <laughs> okay. It's really actually too complicated of a, of a talk to get into that. So let me do it this way. Verses 18 through 19 tell us this. Go to Jesus, not to mystical experiences. Okay? Then verses, 16, well, verses 20 through 23 tell us, rest in Jesus. Rest in Jesus. Don't rest and don't do lists, okay? So rest in Jesus and not and don't do lists. So let's look first at verses 18 through 19, then we're going to look at 20 through 23. Um, are we tracking? Okay, so we've divided the passage in half, and we're going to talk about Jesus versus mystical experiences and Jesus versus don't do lists, okay? Verses 18 through 19. This is, a, this is the finish of a beautiful portrait that's over and over again that Paul is, is sketching out on why and how Jesus matters in our lives. Okay? And I think that's the so what that all of us come into this room with. But, so let me give you a bird's eye view from verses 6 through 23. I'll do it quickly and I'll do it in a quote. Ready? Jesus is enough for the Christian life in everything. Therefore, this question should be, the question should be, where is he not enough for you? If Jesus is enough in life for everything, where is he not enough for you? Where is he not enough for me? Consider where we might be foolish or where we struggle with personal fear. 
Or what are the guilt and the shame and the burdens that we carry? Where are those? And this is what verse 18 is talking about. This is what Paul's asking. He's asking, where is Jesus not enough for us? Where is he not enough? Where do we feel guilt? Where do we feel shame? Where do we feel the burdens? And Paul's language, where do you and I feel disqualified? Where do we, you and I feel disqualified? Where and when do you think you're out of Christian bounds, right? Where do all those gallons upon gallons of self-centeredness collect in your life, in my life? Where do we feel most inadequate and most spiritually insecure? This is such an important question because it is a place, it is the spiritual space that makes the promise of mystical experience, that emotional quick fix, that's why it's so appealing. That very place inside of all of us. If we get serious about our sin, and that's what I've been doing for the last 10, 15 minutes, getting serious about our sin, we get desperate for a cure. The faster, the better. And the rest of verse 18 describes the Colossians' spiritual quick fix. And if you look with me at verse 18, the second half in particular, you'll see there's a flashy ministry personality. He's got false humility and amazing stories of miraculous, amazing miracles and powerful angel encounters. That's what the Colossians look like. And I don't think you have to flip too far on your television to find someone talking about very similar things that match verse 18's description. But before we grab our pitchforks and we chase after the nearest televangelist to the nearest windmill, okay? Verse 19 gives us a caution. Look, and I want you to understand, the problem with false spiritual figures in our lives is not the miracles or even the angels. In other words, I'm not going to debate with you whether or not so-and-so who you know actually met an angel or so-and-so who you know actually had some awesome experience or could possibly have some awesome experience where they did a miracle. That's not where I'm going, okay? And here's why. I believe in a spiritual realm. I believe the Bible describes a universe with a spiritual dimension. Spiritual things are happening. Invisible spiritual things are happening all the time, all around us, okay? And I think some of you are maybe skeptical of that, but to believe otherwise limits the world to what we can understand. That is like calling the ocean only what we can fill with a bucket the size of our heads. But believing in the possibility of miracles also does not believe that everyone who claims something miraculous is telling the truth. There is plenty in the Bible also about false prophets. But the main problem with false spiritual figures is that they leave Jesus out of the equation. Okay? Listen to the way David Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it. What finally condemns mysticism is that it bypasses the Lord Jesus Christ. What finally condemns mysticism is that it bypasses the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't care what it is, however good, however uplifting or noble, it is Christ who is the manifestation of the love of God. Okay, that's an intense quote by an intense man. Okay? Let me give you an example, though, from my life of what I think Paul and David Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is like the longest, awesomest name ever, um, says, okay? What he's talking about. So this past winter break, I got the opportunity to talk about Jesus in a couple local high schools, okay? I was invited to share what Christianity is about for those people who call themselves Christians and those people who don't, 
Okay? And I thought that was a really awesome opportunity. And I decided I'd bring my A game. I'd talk about Matthew 1 and the genealogy. <laughs> the list of rules, and li- the list of, excuse me, of names uh, that begins the New Testament, if you're familiar with it. Why some of you never get past chapter 1 in Matthew. Okay? My point was this, that all of the Bible, however boring, however obscure, points to Jesus. Okay? That it was all about Jesus. Because all of life points to him as its creator, as its source, and as its cure. That was my point. And so I was feeling pretty good about my point right afterwards. Um, as good as I feel after I talk, let's be honest. It's, I'm, just a, I'm just a wreck because I'm a sinner. Okay, so, um, and this well-meaning older woman, she was kind of doing carpool or something, stopped me with a bunch of other people that I was with. And she knew I had given this talk, and she asked me how it went, and I said something like, good, okay, because what are you supposed to say? And she asked about what I spoke about, and I said, oh, well, I spoke about Matthew chapter 1, the Bible, etc. <laughs> okay, because what am I supposed to say? And she made this face like, oh, you missed the opportunity of a lifetime. And I was like, oh. And she asked if we'd ever done testimonies in that time. And launched into a 90 minutes in heaven story about her daughter. Do you know these 90 minutes in heaven are? I really hadn't heard many until I heard this one. Basically, they tend to be these, a person who is clinically dead, who has this vision of heaven, and they come back to life through medical science, and they have this picture of heaven that they explain to the world. Look, it was a beautiful story that she told me, and for all I know, it's true, but the woman's point was that I should have had her daughter tell the 90 minutes in heaven story rather than talking about Matthew 1 and Jesus. Okay? She argued that these kind of miracles are what get high schoolers going. What get you all juiced up about Jesus, okay? Again, I'm not saying that her daughter didn't die. Um, I'm not saying that she didn't experience heaven. I don't know. Who knows, okay? Like, God is in the business of doing whatever he pleases. That's his deal. Okay, he's way above my pay grade. And also... (laughs) I want you to know that she really meant, well, this isn't a story to sit there and say, oh, stupid lady, okay? That's not my point. I'm not here to criticize her. Um, but what Paul's saying in verse 19, you've got to understand, okay? In verse 19, he's saying that we should chase after the Jesus described in the Bible. We should chase after the Jesus described in the Bible, even when our temptation is to chase after a miraculous, powerful occurrence. After all, are we supposed to spend our entire Christian lives chasing after a near-death experience? Are we like supposed to like walk blindfold every Sunday on railroad tracks hoping something might happen? <laughs> I don't see that really working very well. That will do nothing for our guilt. That will do nothing for our fear of disqualification. That will be nothing for the 2,226,000 gallons of selfishness that are flowing out of us all the time. The only place to go with all of our inadequacy, the only place to go with all of our spiritual insecurity, the only place to go with all of our sin is Jesus. Jesus. He's our head, and that means what happened to him, Jesus, has also happened spiritually to his body. That is anyone who believes in him. As we hold tight, look at verse 19. He promises to pull us together, to spiritually nourish us, to grow us. In him, we have the promised qualification. We are approved forevermore. All you have to do is look at Colossians 1.12. We studied it a few weeks ago. That's what it means. We're approved forevermore even as we spew out gallons upon gallons of selfishness. Sure, 
you and I may not feel approved, worthy, loved forevermore, no matter what. That sounds like, feels really hard to feel. But here's what faith is. And I'm trying to get real practical with you. Here's what faith is. It's believing that our approval is in an historical fact accomplished on a cross outside of us. Even and especially in those moments when you most feel inside of you that it's untrue. That's what faith is. And so Paul says, look, don't let guilt drive us into mysticism without Jesus. A spiritual top kill. I just want to say that again. Um, to the well of our hearts. Okay? In verses 20 through 23, he's making another point. He's saying, look, don't let the feeling like we're losing in life with Jesus drive us to a program of don't do this and don't do that. This program will not address the heart. It will just address the behavior, and it will be ineffective. Verses 21 through 23 are describing what's commonly called legalism. Okay, That's legalism. Legalism is dealing with your sin only at a behavior level. It's not addressing the heart. It's wiping pelican beaks and not going after the wellhead. This isn't just because legalism doesn't go deep enough, okay? To the source of sin. This legalism, this list of do-nots, that are listed pretty clearly for you in verse 21. Don't taste, don't handle, don't touch. Here's what it's doing. It's fighting fire with fire. It's fighting sin with sin. When, when fire needs to be fought with water, sin <coughs> needs to be fought with Jesus' death. Okay? And here's how that works. We take rules, okay? Think about it. We see and we feel our desperate problem, okay? Which we've been talking about a ton tonight. Our desperate problem, okay? We are self-absorbed. And our first impulse is to run to a program at behavior modification, isn't it? Like the problem is if I just stop doing this and that, then I'd be a better person, therefore I wouldn't have to look at myself so seriously. It'd be hard, but it'd be easier, okay? That's what we do. And we often take these, these rules, often good, good rules. That's a really important point. Sometimes these are very good biblical rules, okay, from the Bible. And we try to do them in our own strength, forgetting and ignoring Jesus' strength, okay? We think, okay, here's my example. Don't handle R-rated DVDs. Don't taste beer if you're 21. And don't touch people above the friendship bracelet and below the fanny pack. <laughs> yeah, check. Okay, those are ridiculous examples. But let me be clear. The problem isn't the rules themselves. Okay? That's not the problem. The problem is, look, there are many of those rules are good applications of love. There are moral rules in the Bible, and that's great. Okay? The main problem is that we use these laws, these rules, to short-circuit Jesus, to get around him, to do things ourselves. Listen to this. If sin is willing to live our lives on our own way without God, okay? sin is willing to live our own lives our own way without God. Legalism is overcoming sin our own way without God. Do you see the point? Sin and legalism are the same thing. So legalism gets us nowhere. Again, let me give you a real life example, this time dating. We're going to talk about it, okay, it's on everyone's minds. 
Uh, every one of you trying, every one of you is like, look, is frustrated with the Bible at some level, okay? You're frustrated if you're looking for it as a source of life guidance or truth or wisdom or a wonderful story, whatever it is, you're frustrated. And I'm going to tell you why. There is nothing, not a single passage on dating in the entire Bible. And that is super frustrating, okay? Because dating is your world right now. It is. Whether you're dating somebody or not, you're thinking about dating somebody, or you're thinking about maybe someone thinking about dating you, okay? <laughs> it's your world, right? And that's right, like, but the reason we want some, some, like, some sort of guidance so badly on dating, the reason we just want a passage in the Bible so desperately is because we stink. We suck at dating, okay? That's the whole point, okay? We all know it. Everyone in this room and everyone on this campus sucks at dating, okay? Let's just put that on the table, Okay? People either try to do, like, either people, like, try to do this, okay? They try to own someone else. Like, I'm going to run your schedule. I'm going to run your life. I'm going to own your body and do whatever the heck I want with it, okay? Like we're actually married when we're not. Or they try to get physical or emotional benefits, intimacy, without having to commit, without having to do any sort of cost. We're just friends, Okay? And in Christian circles, that happens a lot more on the emotional side. We'll talk about it in a second. So basically, people are worshiping courtship. Okay, that's owning someone else. Or friends with benefits. That's trying to strip mine someone else of things that you want from them. Okay? And let's face it, dating is the time and place where everyone, all of us, see our sin, our selfishness, the most clearly. Okay? We see our selfish desires to dominate someone else, to use someone else, to escape someone else. And all of this, 2,226,000 gallons of sin scares us into the arms of legalism. Doesn't it? So we turn to pastors and books for help, and they mostly give us what we think we always wanted and needed, right? A second Bible. That's what's missing a second Bible. That's the Bible that has all the sort of practical stuff, right? Oh, yeah, the second Bible. That's where we get, to, we get to know everything we always needed to know. The how-to, so to speak, of dating or evangelism. Or what political party to vote for. Oh, that's in the second Bible. My bad. I never knew. So I became a Christian in college my sophomore year. And the next few months, I heard all of these older, more mature Christians... Okay, wax eloquently, eloquently to me about how to date. Okay? And because I had started, just started reading the Bible the first time, I thought to myself, there must be some awesome, awesome, great dating advice somewhere between Leviticus and Ezra. <laughs> There's just mountains of stuff there, obviously. Because these people know everything. But clearly, they didn't reference the Bible, okay? And they referenced Christian authors. And so, like anyone else, I began to read the most quoted Christian author of them all. I'm going to withhold his name for obvious reasons, okay? The author had written a sequel where he promised to meet my every desire. How to meet, date, and marry someone you like, okay? And he was going to use his own life as a testimony. Oh, that's so great of him, okay? I was hooked, naturally. And from the beginning, he renounced his former first work on dating as a bunch of legalism, a list of rules, okay? And it was an unfair list of rules and a hard, murky subject. 
But can I just tell you this? I got to the very end of that book on dating, on Christian dating. And this was like what the whole book was pointing to this chapter. And here's what the chapter consisted of. A list of rules. A list of rules. Okay? Divided by gender, including no side hooks. Or no, no full frontal hooks, only side hooks. Where in the Bible is the primacy? Where is the despair over full frontal hugging? Where is that in the Bible? Oh, that's, that's the line. That's the slippery slope. All of a sudden, you full frontal hug, it's over. Look, my point is not just do whatever the heck you want. I'm not telling you sin boldly. Okay? That's not my point. Okay? And my, and more importantly, Paul's point is this. Certainly do good. But don't forget about Jesus. Don't forget about Jesus. He's our power. He's what makes us able to think and feel and do loving things. Look to Jesus lovingly portrayed as crucified before our very eyes in the scriptures. Hear me. You're going to sit in dating. You are, whether you're dating now or not. I don't care how elaborate your touching rules are. I don't, honestly. This is because sin is at a heart level, not just at a touching and feeling level. Okay? Instead of relying on no touching rules to feel better about the oil spill in our hearts, what if we rested on a historical fact outside of us that's available for everyone to see? Jesus died to sin, for sin, on a cross in the first century A.D. And he died in order to give us a heart cap. His Holy Spirit inside of us. The Spirit is slowly staunching, is slowly smothering, slowly capping the serious, selfish flow of sin for everyone who believes. Do you get that Jesus' death and his spirit is our only hope? I mean, I don't think I can say that too many times. And this is why the Christian life doesn't look like what we do and how we feel, ultimately. Okay? That's what every other system of thought looks like, by the way. That's what verse 23 is talking about. In fact, this whole passage is. Let me get real practical again. The Christian life primarily looks like this. Facing who we really are and trusting in who Jesus really is. Facing who we really are, and trusting in who Jesus really is. And this is why an Episcopal priest named Nicholas Funk is so right. And I heard this in a sermon. The deeper we look into our hearts, the less barbaric the cross of Christ seems. The deeper we look into our hearts, the less barbaric the cross of Christ seems. Do we get what this passage with this quote what the whole Bible and all of life are all about. The more we see our need for Jesus, the more we take a good long look at our heart, the more beautiful and powerful what Jesus has done for us becomes. So, look, we're the deep water horizon. We are a mess of oil. Filth, garbage, okay? Stuff comes out of us that I don't even want to talk about. But there's hope. There's such hope. And that's why this was written. That's why we're even here talking. Okay? Jesus Christ has qualified us. He has delivered us. Okay? His spirit is mopping up our messy hearts. And there will be a day. There will be a day when we will no longer spew out 
selfishness. We will no longer spew forth filth anymore. And out of the mouths and the hands and the feet, our mouths, our hands, and our feet, out of them, we will bathe each other. We'll bathe each other in living water. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, we're grateful <laughs> for um, this time together, this, this, this scripture, which I just can't get over, um, obviously. Um, I just pray that uh, you would give me a humble heart about it. I pray that I wouldn't take joy or delight in um, proving other people wrong, or myself wrong, for that matter, because that's all I do. Um, I pray that you would help us not to be humble, and not a false humility, but a true humility. To see that your word is enough, that it's murky and it's deep and it's hard, and that walking in with Jesus and in Jesus feels like a totally foreign concept. And it's just so much easier to resort to cool or, or easy-to-do things. But I pray, Father, that you would help us to see the futility of other things. They don't work. They're broken, just like we are. And I pray that you'd help us to cling to the only thing that matters. To you, Jesus, the head, the brains of the operation, the source of the operation, the power of our very lives. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.